This is The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Telling stories is a funny old business. Something flippant and off the cuff can contain truths. Sometimes the most laborious effort yields nothing. I like the process of telling stories because I like travel. I don't care to be me all the time. And when you write, you can be whoever you want. Switching to an alternative first-person voice is one way of getting out of your head. But so too is disciplining your mind so that you absent yourself entirely. You become a disembodied, impartial, objective narrator and float free of your own habits of thought. For somebody talking about writing, I hate talking about writing. Many of the questions people ask are loaded with such fallacious presuppositions that it's hard to get away from romanticising the act of writing in a way that bears very little truth to it, at least as I see it. Picasso said, art is not truth, it is a lie that reveals the truth. And I think it can do that for the writer as well as the reader. Or maybe telling stories is healing. In the last episode, writers told stories about themselves. And that's one of the ways to make sense of who you are, as an individual, as a community. Some of the people I've met who've been best at sales are those whose stock in trade is anecdotes. One of the favourite ideas in advertising is creating a brand, creating a story for an idea. As this goes to air, I'm in the thick of launching my novel, The Death of the Poet. And attendant to that process is questionnaire after questionnaire, full of questions about where I got the ideas for this piece of writing. It's a reasonable question, but it's false to imagine that I got the idea and then wrote the story. In fact, quite the reverse is true. It's only through analysing with the benefit of hindsight that I can pathologise how experiences from my life found their way into fiction. When I was writing, I wasn't writing. I was the character. And though I don't believe in God or fate, the writer me was performing that kind of function somewhere invisible to the character me. It was an act of professional quality, willful not knowing. For that reason, when the questions come about process, they're challenging because I've taught myself not to know. All I do know is the addictive quality of that storytelling high of getting out of my head. There are good drug stories. I've got some of the very finest class of stories for you today. And these are all stories about telling stories. Kate Ellis takes a journey on a bus through London and through her past as she goes to meet an old friend. Editor of Open Pen magazine, Sean Preston, talks about the stories that have gone down the very best at live events and the unexpected story behind them. In the story by Titania Krimpus, a girl's making up a story, but the real story's a lot closer to home. Music by Adam Halogen. It's your anniversary again, and I'm waiting for our bus. Kate Ellis. The noise of Hackney is inappropriate for a memorial, even if it does have a new shine to it these days. Neon signs muddle with flickering street lamps in the rain. Kids throw chewed chicken bones that skitter off the curb as they thrash past. Rain weaves its way down my neck, the coolness a nasty relief. A 277 rumbles up, spraying a droopy arc of road water onto the pavement. Its headlamps tremble in the puddles. A woman with a buggy drags her small child towards it. He clings onto the bus shelter with his milky little fists and wails. I see a 55 in the distance. The first time I saw you, you were leaning against this shelter, standing on this paving slab. I almost want to touch the metal frame of the shelter in case remnants of you have lingered somehow. You were reading a battered copy of Ways of Being by John Berger. I stood near you for closer inspection and peered at you over the picture of Dorian Gray. You were wearing your red bubble hat under your hood. Or was it blue? I used to know that. I can picture you in both colours now. I don't know which is real. Your wiry ginger sideburns poking out of the side of the hat, clashing with the red or zinging against the blue. You glanced up and held my eyes for a moment too long to be nothing. Then you got on the same bus and sat next to me. This 55 arrives and its doors wheeze open. It smells of wet plastic, teenage deodorant and deep-fried something. It pulls off while I'm on the staircase. I grab onto the rail for support, pull my weight up with effort. 
Our top front left seat is taken, so I sink heavily into the one behind it. My phone vibrates in my bag. I should have turned it off completely. I move my bag onto the floor, but I can still feel it through my soggy feet. This is the 55 bus to Oxford Circus. The next stop is St Thomas's Square. The announcement volume is too high. It shudders my eardrums. My seat breathes up and down as a man sits next to me. I feel the heat of his damp thigh next to mine and shuffle closer toward the window. A faint aroma of dust and paint weaves up my nostrils. A glob of gum has been pressed into the window frame. Moisture creeps around its hardened form. We're just past Well Street. By this point you would have dropped your hat and felt around by my feet to pick it up. I never did figure out whether this was a device to spark a conversation or you really did drop it. It was awkward. You were feeling around by my feet for ages, grappling. I was both annoyed at the intrusion and paranoid you were going to feel my prickly legs through my tights. Bloody hat. Sorry, you said. Orange eyebrows raised, framing the bluest eyes I'd ever seen. A year later, the day after you'd designed our wedding invitations, beautifully, carefully, with a line drawing of a 55 bus on them, you were hit by a concrete mixing truck and killed. They said it was instant. I never believed them. I couldn't imagine you allowing everything in your head to end so abruptly, without first organising it, filing the best bits on top, deleting anything superfluous. I've often thought, though, you'll be pleased that it was a wound to your head, so no limbs were out of place, your intestines were still contained, your lungs tidy. I've tried to erase this thought, to knock it on the head, but it keeps coming back. A group of teenagers stomp up onto the top deck. One of them wears a t-shirt that says, Jesus is Lord, in big red letters. They sit behind and across from me. The bus is almost full now. The windows are beginning to steam up and rivulets of rain race and wobble toward the back of the bus. You used to wrap yourself around me when it rained, yellow raincoat crinkling as you squeezed, water tight. Your translucent hands covered mine with their dry paper warmth, fingernails flat like pink shields. The thought of you around me now is alien, wrong even. Bits of you have faded, the exact shape of your nostrils is murky. I'm not sure which your favourite radio album was, the depth of your voice might surprise me. I do know you could fit your chin over my head as you enveloped me. And my nose remembers your smell. Even if I pass the faintest waft of your aftershave on the street, it transports me back with a jolt to you falling asleep in our bed, so young, so guileless, snoring so loudly. I see people in their mid-twenties now, and they look like children. You'll never get too old for certain bars, know what it's like to want to stay in on a Friday night, or be the father you wanted to be. A police car winds past and I catch the gaze of a man next to me. His eyes are granite grey. He's eating an apple as if it's still alive, launching his jaws around it at each bite, allowing flesh and juice to spatter his face. A small fleck lingers on his top lip as he fishes a second apple out of his rucksack. He looks up and catches me staring. Want one, he says. Healthy for baby. He gestures my stomach. I shake my head and pull my coat tight around myself, shocked that a stranger can note this intimacy so early on. I shuffle my feet to find the mysterious warm patch of bus floor, willing my toes to dry out. You ate apples so neatly. They would go into your red triangle mouth behind the depth of your beard and come out smaller. No mess, no noise. You had a particular way of eating everything. Spaghetti was tightly curled around your fork, no strands of flap. Orange segments were stripped of all pith, then popped in and swallowed whole. Crumbs never fell from cakes. Even when you ate me, you were neat. I don't know what you did down there, but it made something erupt, fast. We wait afloat in the middle of three lanes at the mouth of Hackney Road. A cyclist wobbles in front, his wet black jacket seals slick, calf muscles tense above his pedals. Back and forth, he makes a staggered balance, his cold face pink as a shellless crab. Someone is making noise in the aisle, moving around. The boy in the Jesus t-shirt, swinging a key on a strap. So the age-old question, he addresses the top deck. Have you done enough good things to go to heaven? Have you done enough bad things to go to hell? He wobbles the A of bad. I am the way, the truth and the light. 
he swings the key by his side, round and round. The apple man is shaking his head, waving his hand in front of his face as if there's a bad smell. This boy is a good talker. His passion is nearly infectious. I wish he'd be quiet. You knew how to be quiet. Too quiet occasionally. Tell me a story, I demanded after dinner one night. You smoothed the tablecloth thoughtfully, then raised your eyebrows. So, you said, your voice small but eager. Once upon a time, there was... I rolled my eyes, but you chose to ignore me, cleared your throat. Once upon a time, there was a red pen, a yellow pen, and a blue pen. Together, they would make any colour in the world, and so they all lived happily ever after. The end. You smiled, then sipped your wine. Task complete. That was not a story. It was too. It had multiple characters, a beginning, a middle and end. What more do you want? You smiled, beckoned a waiter for the bill. I want a real story, I said. You sighed a long sigh, gulped your wine, then began. Okay, so, once upon a time, there was this little alien. This better not be taken from one of your comics. Pure invention, I promise. He looked like E.T., but fatter, brighter green, and he didn't want to phone home. He had a row of neat little gadgets in his chest pocket, which wasn't a pocket in a shirt, but actually in his chest. And his pencil was always sharp and ready to make notes. Is this autobiographical? You laughed, blushed a little, then carried on. He didn't much like it on his planet, because he was run over by their spinny car machines all the time. Fortunately, he had the rebuilding skin gene, so he could, well, rebuild but getting squished all the time began to damage his self-esteem. So he was immortal? I guess so, yeah. Lucky guy, huh? Lucky? You want to live forever? A few centuries would be interesting. I shook my head. So, anyway, one day, this alien guy got a job on Earth. So they threw him here in a spaceport catapult. A what? I said, through giggles. A spaceport catapult. It pings you through space and guides you through the portals to the other planet's atmospheres. Obviously, you said, doodling in the air to demonstrate. The bus lurches to a halt at the corner of Old Street and Shoreditch High Street. I see the first ghost bike. Its pure white frame greyed with weather and city muck. The ashen front wheel peers out from the railings, casually, as if it belongs to someone. It's just locked up. A sodden plastic flower wrapper is taped to the crossbar. This one isn't as old as yours, perhaps only a year or two. The Jesus boy is still shouting and pacing hard, up and down, making the floor bounce. Because I know Jesus is Lord. I know. I believe. I try to tune out, like everybody else, to concentrate outside of the window. I try to notice the things that you would point out. A bar we should go to, some funny graffiti, an old couple holding hands. This is the 55 to Oxford Circus. The next stop is Shoreditch Town Hall. The boy waits for the intrusion to finish before he continues. It's a bit like a key. This is my house key, he says, volume undulating as he moves about the aisle. I live in Catford, South London. A baby starts crying. He raises his voice. But it's the same way. If you want to get into heaven, you need a key to Jesus to get into heaven. I want to tell him it doesn't matter what he believes. When people die, they still leave everybody they know forever. My phone vibrates my foot again. He's more important than everyone, because he died for us. He's more important than the woman who won X Factor, more important than David Beckham or Miley Cyrus. Amen, one of the other kids shouts. Sit the fuck down, a lady in front shouts. The boy pauses. I'll sit down in a minute. Don't worry. The lady sucks her teeth, faces front. The traffic whirl of silicone roundabout looms. If I peer to the right, I can see the window of your old office, second floor, third along. As you got off the bus, you wrote your number down on a ripped-out page of the notebook you kept in your back pocket. I thought it was sweet how you'd printed the date, April 4th, 2008, in your small pencil handwriting in the corner, like you were still at school, a habit that never faded. Whether you're black or white, tall or skinny, fat or thin, you got to have that everlasting life. I'll sit down in a minute, but before I do, I want to tell you this one thing. The boy is persistent. His friends are filming him, urging him on. A couple of years ago, I got knocked down by a car. Before I saw the ambulance, I almost died. I realised that I'm about to be ended now. 
I wasn't afraid. You will not perish, you will have everlasting life. Not because I'm a good person or I'm wearing this T-shirt. He pulls at the text across his chest for emphasis. But because I believe in Jesus. My name is Richard. It's a nice name, a strong name, but only the name of Jesus can save us. The stop bell on the bus jars me. We're at traffic lights, Clerkenwell Road and St John Street. I wipe the condensation off the window of my sleeve, press my forehead against the cold glass, and there you are. Your kind face is still just visible through the weather-scarred plastic. It's the same picture we blew up for your funeral. Taped to the railings and surrounded by fresh flowers your friends place on this date every year. The saddle is missing from the bike, and the handlebars are at a jaunty angle. But someone must have repainted it, because it's pure white under the wet. The bus moves on. I taste wet salt, and I realise I'm crying. The apple man hands me a creased brown coffee napkin. When my mother heard about your death, she told me to read John 5, 28, 29. She said it would give me hope of being reunited with you. I used to yearn for the blind faith I had as a child, that God would provide. If I did that, though, my life would still be on pause. Time stretching out like toffee, waiting to meet you again. I wouldn't have met Tim or had Lola. I wonder what we would have called our daughter, what she might look like, whether she would have had your eyes. I feel a kick to my guts. I get off in High Holborn, outside the Princess Louise. The bar is quiet, lunch is long finished and the post-work rush has not quite arrived. I look at my phone and see six missed calls from Tim. It takes several rings before he answers. You rang? All okay? Lola's been playing with my bloody phone again. You still at work? Finished early, just having a drink with an old friend. I can hear Lola squawking in the background. Home in an hour. I raise a cranberry juice to you. I don't spill a drop. Kate Ellis and her story 55, which is doing really well on the competition circuit right now. For more details about the writers on this week's show, go to www.thewirelessreader.com. Sex is funny. This is Sean Preston. I've performed filthy fiction in front of people about four or five times now. Every time I do it, I can't help but feel pretty cheap after it's all over. Have I lowered myself? This isn't work of any real class. It lacks dignity. I lack dignity. God, I feel dirty. But I'm addicted to the laughs. People find the combination of prose and pornography pretty hilarious. And I get that. I'm the same. It's why I had the idea to take submissions sent to my magazine, a literary magazine called Open Pen, with the altruistic intention of providing aspiring writers with a platform in print and turn them into literary comedy. It's not any old submission, of course. It's only the most vulgar, sexually charged and pornographic of submissions that I then take to the stage with. Most importantly of all, I've found, like any literature, they have to be written honestly, At least, that's how it all started. When I opened the magazine, I certainly didn't consider that we'd receive short stories about Harry Potter's sexual love affair with Hogwarts. I didn't even really see the deluge of fornicating vampire nonsense coming. In hindsight, The latter was probably an oversight, considering we opened our doors slap-bang in the middle of vamp fever. I still shudder now at the thought of wandering into Waterstones in a Christmas panic, desperate to find the mind, body and spirit section. I was shopping for an elderly divorcee, and in my frenzy, stumbling into an eight-foot cardboard cutout of Robert Pattinson. Out of my way, idiot, I shouted, but it was too late. I had fallen into him and was being cradled in his cardboard embrace, his soulless eyes gazing into mine. But that's what we had, more short stories of the adult literature genre than we knew what to do with. 
They sat there issue upon issue, building up in my inbox like discarded condoms at the bottom of my towel block. You know they're there, and now and again, you can't help but have a peek to see the content, but every time you do, you immediately regret it. Until one night when I was drunk and talking shop with an open pen accomplice of mine. Have you seen this? He said, and proceeded to show me a fan fiction website. This was my first visit to one of these sites. Now, a fan fiction site is what you would expect it to be, but there's a side to it you would not expect. It's not what I expected, certainly. This side of fan fiction is short fiction written by fans of a series of books, television, comics, or films with a sexual twist. Sometimes, as described briefly with the Harry Potter and Hogwarts romance, the characters remain assigned to their respective fictional worlds, but now and again the characters and locations are entwined within each other. A bit like if Ernest Hemingway's rough-around-the-edges protagonist went speed dating and hooked up with Bridget Jones. But ignoring that Pulitzer-caliber idea, the stories you can find on these fanfiction sites, to put it mildly, are pretty fucking unmild. I mean, it's not all the sort of thing you'd imagine to be considered a crime in the court of law, though, granted, some of it may well be, but it is all pretty criminal in its insanity. Quite immediately, and without reserve, I was addicted to reading fan fiction, warts and all. The more horrified I became, the more I knew there was some sort of callous value to it all. I was too old to appreciate Pokemon when it hit UK TV screens. By then, I was a vinegary 16-year-old. Yes, quite mature, nodding politely to the satire served up by Eric Cartman and friends. But when I read of poor old Pikachu getting cornered by a couple of randy Transformers and persuaded by way of heavy hand and Pokemon magic to perform sexual acts on the Transformers, I couldn't help feel that a little piece of my childhood had been taken from me, even if Pokemon wasn't actually a part of my childhood at all. But I was drunk, and not at all offended, really. I'm never offended. I have a worrying lack of respect for what is offensive, and, in truth, despise the inconsistencies of the offended. There's so much to be offended by. Who's drawing the line on what is offensive? Sure, Legally, there's a different argument to be made, but socially, between my fanfiction fan chum and I, say, if our intent is to not be offensive, or offended, then what shouldn't pass between our lips? And because I was drunk, I didn't just find it not particularly offensive, and I wasn't just addicted in the sort of way addiction usually festers. I found it pretty funny. I mean, the weird, crude tale I just read... Sure, it was crass, but it was hilarious, and not even because of how badly written it was. Not that it wasn't badly written, it was, and I could tell why it was so badly written. The form dipped off around the section encounter within the story, and the narrative sloped off completely. The person writing this piece of machine on, um, whatever the hell Pikachu is, had clearly become aroused and scrapped any sense of literary fervour in place of a fervour much more innate in human beings. I wonder if Proust had the same problem. It's true, there's not a great deal of passages within In Search of Lost Time as expletively peppered when it comes to sexual encounters in Proust's body of work, but there is this offering from our narrator upon re-entering a room and becoming attracted to the young body of Gilbert, whom he sets upon to wrestle. I had her pinned between my legs, as though she were the bowl of a little tree I was trying to climb. In the middle of all my exertions, without my breathing being quickened much more than it already was by a muscular exercise and the heat of the playful moment, like a few drops of sweat produced by effort, I shed my pleasure before I even had time to be aware of it. Proust is my favourite writer. When I meet people, even people far and away from the world of literary magazines and publishing imprints, I worry that I'm going to suddenly blurt out my undying love for the French author perhaps hoping that they too want to yak on about him all night. So I say this with a sort of shameful respect one reserves for solemn nods to unvisited aunts at funerals. It's not a particularly well-written paragraph, by contrast to the perfection reached within the corresponding pages of In Search of Lost Time.
I presume that it was heavily edited by the theistically challenged prudes at Proust's publishing house, striking huge blotches of red ink over the slang terms of the day for ejaculate. But it's not badly written. It's pretty clean prose, actually. And it makes sense, at least. It makes me wonder if the only way to write sexual literature lucidly is to do so in a state of near death, as Proust did. The only time I feel absolutely absolved of the torment of the male predicament is when I'm bedbound with flu and surrounded by tissues for reasons unrelated to the male predicament. Sex is funny. Christ, the vast majority of my sex life, certainly in my youth, when I had one, is pretty fucking laughable, at least to other people. But it makes sense that a room full of bookworms would find this stuff funny. It's uncomfortable, it's grimy, and it's often odious. Importantly, it's a very physical journey. There's tenseness, almost an anxiety in the lead-up, a meticulous and slow-paced foreplay of prose, before, quite literally, the writer blows his load and rushes the payoff clumsily. I imagined him sitting back in his chair, file-saved, smoking on a cigarette, or perhaps hurriedly cleaning up the evidence and filing the Word document in a folder, in a folder, in a folder, in a folder. The next day, the inbox full of dropped soap and burning loins suddenly took on the form of a trove of treasure. I poured for its content and sniggered into the evening, shortlisting my favourites. I have to say, I was tempted into trying some filthy fiction of my own. Interestingly, there were many, near all of them, written by men. Do women write filthy fiction? Undoubtedly. They write more sexual fiction than men, statistically. But it's the stories I receive from male writers that amuse me most. Perhaps I can identify with it. The form is always the same, a slow build-up, a rushed finish, and an embarrassing clean-up operation. Every time. What makes these men write this stuff, though? Is it more than just writing to them? Is it a process they get off on? And why do people find hearing it funny? Why do I find it funny? I was worried by that. Am I just taking the piss out of people? Would filthy fiction just be a chance to look at bad writing and have a giggle at it with other literary darlings so completely assured of how much better our writing and taste is? That was the concern, and so I needed to be sure that this wasn't the case. When something feels right, yet cheap, or too easy, I look at that something and set about dissecting it. I want to find the essence of these things. I started to look at what made it so cringeworthy and laugh-inducing. I think that comedy is at its best, its most useful, when we are afforded an opportunity to see something in ourselves that makes us laugh. Comedy is at its most ferocious when the butt of the jokes happens to be the person laughing at it. I thought of Oscar Wilde and the line, Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. The mask for these writers is the stories they tell, and yes, thinly veiled they may be in their sexualized folly, they show us something innate to them. I have always believed people to be essentially the same, in most respects. This most raw and lurid of storytelling shows us something that none of us as men can get away from, senseless lust. The reaction we have, as people to exposure of that which is most senseless within us is one of embarrassment, and, as we get older, amusement. A bit like when I was a child, caught napping, another shameful act of obedience to one's body, and upon being discovered, would instantly protest my utter alertness. I was thinking quietly. I was just seeing how long I could keep my eyelids closed. I was just practising the recovery position. Think not that I was deep in repose, you fool. The comedy buffoon or comic protagonist, in all his guises, allows us a subconscious look at ourselves, and often a rather humiliating one. We chortle at Molière's misanthrope, and we do it because we too are miserly. We look at the lazy Englishman paraded about the Thames for our amusement in Jerome's Three Men in a Boat, and we eat it up, as we did in the 19th century, because we're forced to laugh at ourselves. 
There are few men in the moneyed world that live outside of laziness totally. It is true, too, of filthy fiction and why it works, that in hearing of the conceited sexual exploits of a felon or the selfish love-making experiences of an oldham-based rapper that we see into the most unflattering of mirrors we can know, it's testament to us as people that our reaction is one of amusement. It's not just the men laughing, of course. The sexual idiosyncrasies of men are not a subject enjoyed explicitly by the clumsy agenda. You'll be stunned to hear. Women too find it funny. Why? Well, because we're not particularly good at hiding our sapient thirst. Women get us. They see how hopelessly puppeteered by a libido we are. They've lived lives of it. Men are from Mars. Women have a PhD in Mars. They probably got it studying on Mars. I've always been a bit diffident of the side of my life in which comedy and laughing is prevalent, which I suppose occurs within my personal life. There are few things I find more interesting and affirming than laughing, joking, clowning, gesturing and attempting to make people laugh. Yet it's really only with filthy fiction that I've seen how I can take this chunk of my life and apply it to that which I have always held the more clinical respect for, which happens to be literature, music and the arts. The reaction that is laughing, the ha-ha, is a reaction cultivated by truth. Art, at its best, shows us a truth we had not seen before, but had known all along. I think that's why I like books so much. It's why I like Proust so much. He shows us truths new to us, on an individual level. Things we'd always known, but somehow had never really known. It's the same with filthy fiction, albeit on an infinitely more basic level. Okay, here's the thing. I feel I've justified filthy fiction, but I don't actually use reader-submitted filthy fiction at all. Whilst I could justify it to myself, I couldn't do the same for everyone I spoke to about it. The main stumbling block being using storytelling that was probably written with the intention of serious storytelling. So I made it up. Not just me, my accomplice in this, Piers Pereira, too got to work in counterfeiting stories of crude content. It was the only way to make it work long term. And what fun it was. And how well it's turned out for us. We had a whole host of experience by now with this sort of fiction. We'd read novels worth of racy tales and steamy sketches. I'd only ever written serious fiction prior to this. And only really ever to varied success. But this was comedy writing. The words flowed like iron clippings finding their place upon a magnet. As Orwell once wrote of hack writers. It was joyous. The first filthy fiction reading I gave is the reason I decided that filthy fiction was something that others definitely find funny. Reading it now, I see why I enjoyed writing it so much. It's not the style of the writing so much, or even the sexually explicit content. It's the image of the author I was allowed to project. In all the fan fiction I read, the author had nearly always projected the version of themselves they pined to be within the protagonist. Whether it be a man of sexual prowess, unburdened by the shame of inadequacies that puncture the lives of many men, completely demonstrative of what he wants from sex and what he wants to see in himself, or something very similar. Here's a piece I wrote in the style of an author that I had formed quite fully in my head before setting out to write. It wasn't hard. I'd met him in pubs and cab rides all across London. There, on the roadside, next to his stylish Ford Mondeo, Mickey made sweet and unprotected sex to the alien girl, who was definitely over the age of consent on Earth. As he finished up inside her, he watched his life juice make its way around her body, slowly the colour making its way back around her body and into her tits. The space girl made her way back into the ship. Thanks for saving my life, said the space girl. Thanks for saving my sex life, said Mickey. But he didn't mean it. His sex life was awesome. He felt sorry for his ex-girlfriend, who was probably not getting any sex, even though she was a right slag. I guess it should be natural to me to write in this way. Aside from literature and other high art, I've been a pro-wrestling fan and a bit part pro-wrestler for all of my adult life. Portraying caricatures and caricatured scenarios comes naturally to me. If writing sincere prose doesn't. In wrestling... 
Suspending the audience's disbelief is key. Of course, the crowd knows what's really going on. It's the same with filthy fiction, I suspect. But why would they want to know the ins and outs of it if they can just enjoy and identify with the content with a sort of blissful ignorance? And so we don't let on, explicitly, that we're writing this stuff. In filthy fiction, I think I'm finding something of relevance in my literary endeavours. Relevance, as I wrote in the editorial of my magazine's first issue, is precisely what is most important about writing. Is filthy fiction silly? Of course it is. It has to be. Sex is silly. Our relationship with sex is silly. And unsophisticated. Filthy fiction brings that to the forefront, and the reaction hoped for, one of amusement, is as good to me as a warmth of appreciation in taking in Proust's description of his grandmother for the first time, or the warmth felt by Harry Potter as he first spooned Hogwarts. Sean Preston there. You can hear more filthy fiction at Open Pen Live. Just check out the Open Pen website. This is The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. If you'd like to tweet, come and befriend our malnourished Twitter account. We're The Wireless Reader. We're at Fewer Wires. The music you're listening to is by Adam Halogen. dripped onto Zoe's laptop and slid down in between the letters. She wiped her eyes, exhaled and snapped the screen shut. This is Titania Krimpus. The smell of cooked tomatoes from the kitchen mingled with the summer breeze and the waft of lemon anti-mosquito candles on the porch table. Her father sat puffing on his cigarillo looking up at the dot, dot, dot of stars, an empty glass by his side. A silence stretched and yawned between them, and a surge of warmth soothed her heart like smoke. The moon's starting to wane, said her father. Are you hungry? she asked. Ah, yes. I wondered when you'd get peckish. I'll serve up the vegetable goo, shall I? Hmm... I slipped in a smidge of sweet chilli to lift it a bit. The goo, it turned out, was delicious. A tasty mix of tomatoes, onions, garlic and aubergines with the sweetness of a savoury jam but a kick in the tail. After they'd eaten and her father was tapping yet another cigarillo, Zoe plucked up her courage. When do you know that you've reached an ending? Interesting question. Pour me another. He nudged his glass towards the ouzo bottle on the table between them. How many have you had, Dad? Plenty, but I'd like one more, poor. Her father smiled his Frank Sinatra-ish smile. Is this about your story? Sort of. Zoe poured them an ouzo. She didn't love it, but it was the only alcohol they had in the house. An ending is a curious thing, because it often preempts a beginning. Zoe sighed. Couldn't he be straightforward just for once? Why don't you read it to me, he asked. Are you sure? Sure, I'm sure. OK, I don't want a big critique or anything. It's just a first draft and it's a bit weird. A gut reaction, yeah? Read it. OK. Zoe opened her laptop, double-clicked, and the document blossomed on screen like an origami flower. Once upon a time in a land far away, there lived a big bear. He had enough to eat and a roof over his head, but sometimes a cavernous feeling groaned inside him like a hungry monster. The feeling was a great, big, bear-sized loneliness. One day, when he was doing his usual trudge from the high ground to the centre of the earth, where he collected boiling honey lava for all the large supermarkets, he came upon a sorry sight. Halfway down the honeycomb core, 
a tiny girl, pale as cream and frail as silk, was sobbing her heart out. He asked her what was wrong, careful not to sound too gruff. Girls often seemed to run away from his hairiness. I... I... she sobbed and snuffled. His eyes asked again, What's wrong? Oh, never mind. She curled herself into the ridges of the honeycomb cavern. He didn't know what to do. He wouldn't earn his daily wage if he didn't deliver his hot honey on time, but he couldn't just leave a girl here alone, down near the centre of the earth. So he picked her up and flung her over his shoulder. He could barely feel her weight. She was a tickle on his arm, more sleeping butterfly than living, breathing girl. She seemed stunned by his kindness, and after a while her sobbing died down. He trumped down, down, down to the honey-hot centre of the earth. He dipped his tin buckets in the molten lake, as usual, and hauled them all the way up to the high ground. All the while the little girl dangled like a thread from his shoulder. The bear delivered his honey and took the girl to his cave. She could hardly lift a finger she was so weak. He spooned hot lemon and honey juice into her mouth, covered her in a little rug, made of a distant bear cousin, and watched her sleep. Gradually the girl grew stronger and stronger as she fed on the bear's honey treats, cakes and buns, honey roast ham, and even, though he didn't tell her because girls can be squeamish about eating bunnies, honey roast rabbit. As they ate and drank together, they got to know each other's secrets. The girl had run away from home because she was sick of being scrutinised and criticised by her stick-thin stepmother, and the bear was alone because he'd lost his entire family in the Russian bear pogroms many years ago. They led a simple life in the cave and became each other's family. The girl came up with all kinds of ideas for the bear's future. He could run his own honey business so he could profit directly and not lose half his earnings to the nasty supermarket chains. They could set up a stall in the village, which the girl could run, and a nighttime delivery service which the bear could manage. As the girl grew stronger, she began to notice that she couldn't take her eyes off the bear. When he bended down to tend their fire, she wondered how it would feel to grab hold of his sturdy shanks, and she started dreaming of his big arms around her at night. One Monday morning, after a particularly steamy dream, the girl got up and sat opposite the bear in front of the fire. As he handed her a morning cup of honey dew, she looked into his eyes and held them for a moment. Then he shifted his gaze away from her. The following Monday, she took her experiment a step further. As he handed her a morning cup, she stroked his paw. He paused, kept it there a moment, but then she went back to stirring the honey in the pot. The following Monday, she was resolved to be bolder. When he handed her a morning cup, she put it down. She took his furry face in her hands and kissed him. Are you sure, he said, sounding more like a gruff mouse than his full gentle bear self. Sure, I'm sure. He picked her up and carried her over to her leafy bed. He ripped her dress down the middle with his sharp front teeth and she gasped. This was much more exciting than anything she'd dreamt of. She loved the peaty smell of the bear and the roughness of his fur on her skin and being surrounded by him, engulfed by him, like she was being swallowed whole. Every Monday morning and sometimes during the week, the bear carried the girl to her bed and every time he cut her dress down the middle, she experienced a little shivery thrill. Afterwards, they shared hot buttered toast, and to the bear's delight, she sewed her dress back up again. As the months rolled by, the girl began to notice that the moment when the bear cut his teeth on her dress was making her feel number and number, and her sadness when she sewed the dress up again grew and grew. Her heart felt heavy and cold, as if it was filling up with stones. One Monday morning, when the bear bore his teeth ready to slice off her dress, he found it already unstitched. When she refused to sew it up again, he roared with rage and pulled the cave apart, knocking over honeypots and flowers and decimating all the homey touches the girl had made in his wake. At night, when he returned, the girl had gone. She'd left a note, skewered onto the cave wall, written in the darkest honey they had. Sorry, I had to go. The end. Zoe stopped abruptly. Hmm... Her father toyed with his now unlit cigarillo, rolling it between his thumb and forefinger. Not quite satisfying yet. He reached for his zippo, but managed to nudge it off the edge of the table onto the stone floor by accident. It landed with a little crash. Zoe picked it up and sparked him up. But that's all I've written. What did the girl really want to write in that note? 
Too much. Her thoughts were whizzing. She didn't quite know. That's why she just had to go. Maybe you just don't know yet. Probably means I don't have anything to say. I should just trash it. You don't always have to know what you're saying, exactly. Sometimes you have to let a story lead you where it wants to. Maybe he had a point. She always enjoyed the first rush of a story, and there was nothing more satisfying than a big, bold, the end, full stop. But what about the middle? That felt like deep, murky water, where you might drown or get sucked under by hideous, unknown water snakes. What happens to the bear after the girl's gone? Her father's gravelly voice took her out of her thought buzz. I don't know. She shut her eyes and tried to summon up a picture of the bear. She saw a hazy, dark form like a mirage in her mind's eye. The bear wept hot tears until his fur was drenched like a soggy old coat. He curled up on the girl's leafy bed, burying himself in the sweet hay smell of her. The next morning he didn't have the heart to get up, nor the morning after, nor the morning after that. A few weeks later the villagers started going to other suppliers and his business went to ruin. The bear grew weaker and weaker and felt like he was drowning in the darkness of his cave, but he couldn't see a way out. Zoe paused. The bear was suspended in a swirl in her head, like an abstract cave painting, a black on terracotta daub. What about the girl? The girl was thriving. She'd taken everything she'd learnt from the bear one step further and set up her own business in the next village. Sweet as honey remedies. A healing parlour where people came from far and wide to soothe themselves with her powerful potions. One day, feeling strong enough, she decided to visit the bear's village to see what new raw materials were on the market. But when she got there, the stallholders told her they hadn't seen him for months. She packed up her new supplies and strapped them into a large pack on her back and made the arduous journey up the side of the mountain to the bear's cave. The air in the cave stank of stale breath, and in a corner a dark, scrawny figure lay hunched on the remains of her leafy bed. All the honeypots were bare, and the cave was as hectic as she'd left it. She lit a honey candle and mixed the bear one of her tonics to drink. He groaned and rolled over in his sleep. As he slept, she bathed him with a healing honey and lavender wash, dried him and soothed his cracked paws with camphor cream. Then she set about cleaning up. She lit a fire in the centre of the cave, scrubbed sticky pots, threw away broken jars, evacuated armies of ants and mopped the walls, and soon the cave looked habitable again. The following morning the bear was still a sorry sight. His eyes only half open, he stirred to see the morning light. It's you, he said. You've come back. Rest, she said, the pebbles in her heart cracking like dried earth. I'll come tomorrow afternoon. I've baked you some honey cakes for breakfast. The next day when the girl came, no longer a girl really, let's call her the woman from now on, she found the bear manically bounding around the cave, full of new plans and inventions and hopes. I'm so pleased you're back, he said. I thought war was lost. She ushered him back to bed and once more treated him with healing potions. When she went to leave, he said tearfully, Stay. It could be just like it was before. She shook her head. It got stuck. Zoe paused. Her father looked up at the stars. Then after a few moments, Great but I still don't think that's the end. She was pissed off now. What? She can't just go back to him. I can't write an anti-feminist story where a young woman repeatedly reenacts losing her virginity to her Neanderthal lover. Don't then. Still doesn't mean it's finished. Well, you write it if you know so much about it. Her father smiled. What? You're in, he said. What do you mean? I'm stuck as hell. You care about the girl and the bear now, and you're stubborn, so you'll stick with it. Zoe poured herself another ouzo. She knocked it back, loving the sting on her throat but hating the pukey aftertaste. Right, so, okay, on the third month, when the bear asked her to stay yet again, she said, 
Look, I've missed you too. I admit it, and I was terrified when I thought you wouldn't make it. But there's no way I can just put that smelly old dress back on, have you rip it off and end up feeling crap again. The bear stood up and towered over her. Sit down, said the girl. I'm not scared of you. I've seen you in your underpants, remember? The bear sat down slowly, but stared hard at the girl. They were about the same height with her seated. What do you see? she asked. My beautiful girl, looking a bit pissed off. Except I'm not... Well, I am pissed off. I mean, I am not your girl. I'm a woman, not some delicate flower. I can survive on my own. But don't you ever get lonely? asked the bear, extending a paw to her. Yes, but... She wouldn't take it. The bear handed her the old, ragged, torn, but sewn-up dress that she used to wear. Put it on. Please. No, she said, throwing the dress to the ground. Wearing that would be like asking you to get ill again, and me bathing you like a baby every night. It's sick, not healthy. I don't want either of us to be weak like that again. I want us to be strong. Equals. The end, I think. A silence hovered in the air. Now I think you're getting somewhere, said her father. But still not the end. Even though Zoe protested, she knew it too. She was in the middle of her story, in the mud. And it was messy and uncomfortable, and a bit new. But there was plenty to explore. Tanya Krimpus, who amongst other things is working on a novel after the fire. She also directs theatre. Contributors were Kate Ellis, Sean Preston, Titania Krimpus. Music by Adam Halogen. Production by Bernadette Barclay. I'm M. Quentin Wolfe.